You're listening to the Life Church Livonia podcast, a show where you can hear the teachings from our weekend gatherings. You can catch the full service on our Facebook or YouTube and head over to our website if you'd like to give. Here we're real people following a real God and experiencing real life. Welcome to Life Church Livonia. Good morning, Life Church Livonia. It is great to be here with you today. I'm uh, really thankful that we are heading up on our Easter Sunday, Easter season, and I'm super thankful you may have seen this week on our social media. So excited to welcome Marissa Parham to join us here as the worship leader at Life Church Livonia. I deeply love Marissa and her husband, Sam. Uh, they're two of my close friends, and I'm so grateful that we get to do this next season of ministry together. And I just want to pray for them uh, as we begin our service today, because today is their first Sunday in person. It's Marissa's first Sunday in person. And next week, Easter weekend, is her first weekend leading worship for us as our new worship leader. So I just want to pray for them and bless them, and then we'll, we'll jump into our text and service for the day. So Lord, I just lift uh, Sam and Marissa up to you. We lift them up to you. Lord, we just ask that you would... <sighs> Empower them for this ministry, Lord. You've called them to this. You've called Marissa to this. And Lord, I pray that you would empower her to do the ministry, to discharge the ministry for which you have called her. And I pray over Sam, Lord, that you would give him great wisdom as her husband to know how to support her in this calling uh, that you have placed on her. We just are so grateful for them. I pray that we would walk forward together in unity and godliness and Lord, in a way that brings your kingdom of heaven to earth. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. In 2016, uh, Egyptian authorities tried to convict a man named Ahmed Sharara. <laughs> Love the name. For his part in a triple homicide. Very dangerous, very intense. And uh, for sabotaging public and private property. According to the news, just after the ruling uh, the authorities dispatched people to Ahmad's house in order to arrest him. But upon arriving, they found that Ahmad was a three-year-old toddler. And at the time that these crimes were committed, Ahmad would have been 16 months old. <laughs> now, don't get me wrong. Three-year-olds can be dangerous in their own way, uh, but should hardly be tried for a triple homicide. So instead of realizing that this was clearly the wrong person, the authorities decided to arrest the kid's dad and held this kid's dad for four months as they tried to figure out what they had gotten wrong in the process. Fortunately, someone in the justice system uh, saw reason and double-checked the details of the case and double-checked everything about the case. And it turns out the real offender was not, of course, this three-year-old child who would have committed triple homicide at 16 months. It was this 16-year-old with the exact same name. The issue is that the authorities had all this knowledge about the case and about the crime and about Ahmed, but had never met Ahmed in person. So they made some assumptions about who he was, and when they were met with the clear reality that did not fit those assumptions, they were unable to pivot until somebody had the sense to look into it and make the correction. And we've all experienced a gap and knowing about somebody versus knowing who someone is by experience. I can remember one time I was at a show. <laughs> I was at a show and there was a guy I saw across the room and I mistook him for a musical hero of mine. 
and we'll just call this guy, I don't know, Chad. That's not a great name, but yeah, if your name's Chad, no offense. <laughs> anyway, not a great name for this guy. So Chad, I, I, I go, oh my gosh, there he is. That's, that's Chad over there. And I just kind of like play it cool, like kind of mosey my way over. I'm like, hey man, how's it going? Oh, pretty good. So yeah, you come to see the show? Obviously he came to see the show. He goes, yeah, yeah, it's a pretty good show. I said, yeah, so, and then I, I mentioned something <laughs> about his upcoming album or like a, something I knew about him um, thinking he was this other person. <laughs> and he goes, how did you know about that? I said, well, you know, I follow your career and that kind of thing. Turns out about a year later, I meet the real Chad and it was not the guy I was talking to. So I don't know if the guy just had played me or if I just randomly guessed the correct detail, but I knew all about this guy's musical career, but I had never actually met him in person. And so when I finally thought I did meet him, I was horribly mistaken. I was horribly mistaken. And so I just kind of face palmed, you know, knowing, about somebody or who somebody is without experience, it's, it's a normal part of life. And we all make silly mistakes around those things. You know, many of us know who Jeff Bezos is, but we don't know Jeff. Many of us know about Elon Musk or about LeBron James or about Taylor Swift or about, you know, fill in the blank. And, and there are lots and lots of people we know about, but we'll never really know uh, by experience. But the deal is, and the reason we've been doing this series is, there will always be people we uh, don't know by experience. We just don't want God to be one of those people. Throughout this series, The Seven Realities of Experiencing God, our goal has been to teach you how to come to know and do the will of God so that you come to know God by experience instead of just knowing about Him and making some foibles and mistakes in that process. Today's Palm Sunday. And Palm Sunday celebrates the day that Jesus entered into Jerusalem, celebrates the week before his crucifixion. And as Jesus entered Jerusalem the week before he was crucified, there was a parade, a parade held in his honor. Uh, as people looked in deep anticipation, they believed that Jesus was the Messiah whom they had longed for, whom they had been waiting for. And this was true. But they also believed that salvation that Jesus was coming to bring would be like the Maccabean revolt of nearly 200 years earlier, that it would be this bloody, violent ordeal in which Jesus would physically and uh, militarily overthrow the Roman Empire that was currently, uh, had, had Israel held captive. They believed that Jesus was coming to throw their over, uh, Roman oppressors over and, and to make Israel a sovereign nation again. And in their excitement, they waved palm branches, which signified victory as they looked forward to Rome's bloody defeat. See, they knew about the Messiah, but they didn't know him. They, they didn't know that Jesus, their Messiah, was actually very different than the person they thought he was. They thought the Messiah was coming to kill, but instead he was coming to die. They thought that he was coming to conquer the enemies of their outer world, but instead he was coming to conquer the enemy of sin in their inner world. They thought that Jesus was coming uh, to make, to free them from their Roman oppressors, not to free them from their spiritual oppressors. And the reason they didn't know these things wasn't a gap in their information necessarily about the Messiah. It's that they didn't know him by experience. They just knew about him. So the question that we're answering today is, 
How do we come to know God by experience? How do we come to know God by experience? I want to take a look at a script at a scripture today where the disciples uh, come to know God by experience. And I, I want to take a look at how that happens because they walk through each of the seven realities we've been talking about over these past six weeks. We didn't just make this stuff up. This is the process we see in scripture. And I want us to reflect as we look at the scripture on where we're at in that process and what steps God might be inviting us to take today so that we might come to know him by experience. So we're going to read in Mark 6, uh, 30 through 44 together. It says this, the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. So here's a little just bit of context that we're seeing as Jesus and the disciples are about to have a very unexpected adventure. Jesus had just sent out 72 of his disciples, including the 12, uh, in pairs of two. They had just finished going ahead of Jesus in all these different places in Israel where they spent time preaching the good news that the kingdom of God was near. And they spent time casting out demons and healing people in the name of Jesus. And they came back with this incredible amount of energy having been expended on this missions trip of sorts. They had just poured it all out preaching the good news abroad on on this uh, missionary kind of quest that Jesus had sent them on. So they come back exhausted. They're exhausted spiritually. They're exhausted emotionally. They're exhausted physically. And Jesus sees that they need some rest. Now, uh, the 72 that went out to preach the gospel, um, they were, the people that they had gone to preach to were unaware that Jesus was coming. They were unaware that God had been at work over the past 30 years through the incarnation to bring them freedom. But God was at work. And these two by two that Jesus had sent out were to seed his coming arrival into these different areas so that people would begin to long to know more about him before he even got there. And and here, even just in the kind of preface, the premise, the context, we see our first principle that God is always at work around us. God is always at work around us. Uh, we, when we finally notice God's work in our lives, it's often just like this situation. In, in this situation, God had been preparing Jesus for 30 years to go on this uh, kind of missionary, itinerant travel throughout Israel, preaching the good news. The people didn't know it, but God had been preparing for this for a long time. And the same is true for us. When we finally begin to see and witness the fruit of God being at work, it's often a fruit that he has been cultivating over a really long time. Just like God had been preparing Jesus for 30 years and the world for many more years before that, God has been preparing for you. He's been preparing things for you to invite you into. And we'll get to that in a minute. So that's our kind of context, the backdrop. The 72 just come back from this missionary journey where they went and preached the good news and healed a bunch of people and they're exhausted. And then this is what happens next. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, 
he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. So God has been at work around, uh, in and around these people's lives and they're drawn in and they're drawn to Jesus despite the fact that the disciples are tired. God is at work and he's at work drawing people to Jesus, pursuing a relationship with them through his son. And Jesus sees that and he says, truly, truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself unless he sees the father doing it. For whatever the father does, the son also does. The father loves the son and shows him all he does. And to your amazement, he will show him even greater works than these. Jesus says this in a different part of scripture, but what he's communicating here is, listen, God is the one, the father is at work and I don't do anything in my own strength or power. I am always just following what it is the Father is doing. So the disciples get back, they're exhausted, but Jesus sees that God is at work. And he sees people longing to know God. Jesus sees the Father moving, and Jesus decides to join him. Jesus sees that the Father is pursuing a relationship with these people that are pursuing Jesus. And this is our second reality of experiencing God. It's that God pursues a continuing love relationship with you and with me that is both real and personal and practical. The story goes on. It says, Jesus now is kind of doing this whole day of ministry. It says, by this time it was late in the day. So his disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, Jesus answered, you give them something to eat. <laughs> I love that phrase at the beginning, it's getting late in the day. Because it's not just late in the day for the people who are, have been following Jesus, it's really late in the day for the disciples who just had to do this whole unexpected day of ministry when they thought they were going to rest. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been like, just at the end of a race or so, like, you know, the ra a race kind of day and then another mile gets added to it and you're just like, oh my gosh, I'm going to die. <laughs> That's what I imagine is happening right now. And one of the other observations that Bob Hoy made about this whole text is he said, how do 5,000 people, which we'll get to in a minute, there's about 5,000 men there. So you can guess 10 to 15,000 people, including women and children. Bob Hoy said, uh, how do 10 to 15,000 people not remember to bring lunch or dinner? And Bob's thinks it's because they didn't think they were going to stay. They didn't think they were going to stay. And I think that's exactly what happened. These people see Jesus and are so in need of him and aware of their need for him. They go, food can wait, but this, I have to be there for this. So it's getting late in the day. And the disciples are really tired. They had gone away to rest and they get interrupted by a whole nother day of ministry. And one of the things I remember thinking is, uh, I studied this text was, man, if you only are willing to follow Jesus from nine to five, he'll come at 501. Because <laughs> he's God. There are no limits on his work. And uh, often he invites us into these unexpected interruptions that, um, force us to rely on his strength and energy. 
And this is the third reality of experiencing God that we had talked about uh, in our series. We know that God is always at work around us. We know that that work is, he's pursuing a a love relationship with you and with me and with every person in the world. And that he invites us into that work. And uh, when we talked about this a couple weeks ago, we talked about that work requires God's power, not my power. Jesus sees God at work around him, and Jesus is willing to pivot and change his plans to join God in that work. And so he says to the disciples, you give them something to eat. And now Jesus is inviting the disciples into the same work the Father had invited Jesus into. So you see what's happening here? Jesus sees God at work. He lets himself be interrupted. God invites Jesus into this work, and now Jesus is inviting the disciples into this same work. And then the scripture goes on to say this at Jesus' invitation. They said to him, that would take more than half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? And then Jesus replies, how many loaves do you have, he asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said five and two fish. One of the disorienting things about joining God in God's work is that it's his work. It's not our work, meaning it requires God's power, not our power. The disciples have a panic moment because they are woefully unequipped to do what Jesus is asking them to do, and it really stresses them out. And this is a major learning in every believer's life. When God invites us into his work, we immediately feel like, that's impossible. Uh, I don't think I can do that. Uh, I Actually, I know I can't do that. And that's exactly right. We can't do it. It's God's work. It's not our work. And in this section, we see the fourth and fifth realities that we talked about in our Experiencing God series. Reality number four is that God speaks by his Holy Spirit through prayer, scripture, circumstances, and the church. And that's how God speaks to us post-Pentecost, the giving of the Holy Spirit. This is pre-Pentecost. People don't have the Holy Spirit in them yet. And so Jesus is God incarnate, and he is speaking to the disciples. And this is such an important uh, part of the experiencing God uh, steps, because God invites them into a work, but just inviting you into a work doesn't mean you know what to do. And so Jesus tells them what to do. God speaks through Jesus to tell the disciples what to do. He says, you give them something to eat. The disciples go, no way, Jose. I cannot do that. (laughs) I cannot do that. And Jesus knows that already because they're going to need God to do that. But the same is true for you and me. When God invites us into a work, the next step is not just to dive headlong in and decide what things need to get done. It's to listen to him to see what it is that he wants to do. And just like we find the disciples now, this inevitably leads to a crisis of belief. This inevitably leads to a crisis of belief that requires faith and action. The crisis of belief comes because God asks, asks us to do something beyond our scope, beyond our power, beyond our ability. Because again, it's God's work, so it's God-sized. It's not our work. It's not me-sized. It's God-sized. And God doesn't ask for my power in his work. He asks for my participation. Because in Luke 18, 27, he says this, what is impossible with man is possible with God. God isn't requiring my power. He's not requiring your power to do his work. 
He's asking us for our participation as co-workers, not as mini-gods, right? And uh, what's impossible for us is possible for God. So he invites the disciples into this work. He speaks to them and tells them what he wants them to do. And it creates a crisis for them. We don't have enough, is what they tell Jesus. And then this is what happens next. The scripture goes on to say, Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. Amazing. Jesus asked the disciples to trust him, to trust him with the five loaves and two fish and to make an adjustment, which is reality number six in our seven realities of experiencing God. As they did what Jesus told them to do and adjusted their lives, which I'm sure took a long time. Remember, Jesus says, go sit them down in groups of hundreds and fifties. There were probably 10 to 15,000 people. It's already late in the day. They just got back from a missions trip. They're exhausted. They were going to rest and they got interrupted by this. And yet they make the adjustment when Jesus asks them to. And because they make that adjustment, they may have known from the Old Testament, yeah, God's my provider, Jehovah Jireh, you know, the Lord is with me. He provides for people. He provided for the Israelites in the desert with manna. He provided for so-and-so at this and that. And he provided for this and he provided for that. He threw King David and through Joshua. They may have known that God provided. But because they made the adjustment, they saw 10 to 15,000 hungry people leave satisfied. And they ended with leftovers. The disciples came to know God by experience as they obeyed him and as he accomplished his work through them. This is the seventh reality of experiencing God. After they did this, they didn't just know God could provide. They knew that provision deep in their own soul for themselves and for others in a profound way. They felt their need and lack of power to provide for themselves. They felt the nervousness. They felt the fear as they stepped out in faith, wondering if it would work and what might happen. And they came to know the rush, the love, the mercy, the peace, the humbling of watching God do something that only God can do. They didn't just know God could provide anymore. They experienced it in their relationship with him. And that moved them deeper in that relationship on a profound level. Jesus' call to them and to us is to follow me, which implies and requires participation, not just observation. And many of us, especially as we're nervous and trying to figure out faith, we don't do follow me, we do observe me. Let's just watch Jesus and see if he does, see if he's safe enough, see if I, you know, he's trustworthy enough, see if he's not going to ask me to give up too much. And when we substitute follow me for observe me, 
We miss out on experiencing God. And we can go to church for 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years and not know God by experience and just keep knowing about him. But that's not God's will for you. And it's not God's will for me. We cannot come to know God simply by observing him or the people who know him. We have to obey him. We have to join him in his work. We have to move through these other steps. We have to recognize he's always at work around us. We have to enter into a love relationship with him. We have to accept his invitation and listen to what it is he wants us to do, even though that's going to require major adjustments and lead me through a crisis in my own faith. That's going to require me to just take the leap and hope he catches me. There's a song by an artist named John Mark McMillan, whom I really love, called Counting On. And his, in an interview, as he talked about why he wrote the song, he said, I just came to a place in my faith where I was like, okay, I'm taking the leap, but Jesus, you better catch me, because if you don't, you're all I got. You're all I got. And that's what that crisis of belief is. And as we move through that, by taking action on, in faith, and we make the adjustments God asks us to make, that's when we come to know him by experience, not just hearsay. It was by experience that I learned God was my provider as I prayed for a winter coat and winter boots in my size as a child, and then I watched them arrive unexpectedly. I remember when I learned by experience that God was my strength as I served at Bear Lake Bible Camp, and the nights were very light, and we played games and talked with campers and and counseled them in their faith till the early hours of the morning. And as my body would reach its limit every week during camp, I'd just ask the Lord for strength, and I would get a second wind that just was inexplainable and way beyond my own power. But it was two years ago when I learned by experience what it meant that God was with me. I remember hearing, you know, all the time growing up in church, you know, God is with you, and God is with us, and God is close, and God is near, and God came down to be with us. And I knew all that, and I believed it on a theological level. I mean, come on, if God is omnipresent and all-powerful, how can he not be with me, right? And it only made sense. However, just because I knew it theologically uh, didn't mean I knew it by experience. In 2019, I was really struggling, uh, both as a person and as a pastor. Uh, a couple on well, one of my serving teams had left the church, had gotten divorced. It was really uh, hard. It was really messy. And um, there was some another conflict going on at church that we were just bleeding people from. Uh, the people that left, I don't, I don't think really many of them knew about the conflict, but it just changed the atmosphere. And for one reason or other, lots of folks were uh, leaving Life Church Livonia and uh, at the same time, my family was going through uh, a conflict that was deeply, deeply painful. Uh, I was adjacent to the conflict, not at its center, uh, and was really, really struggling with what to do about it, with what my role was, with what I should do, with what I could do. I, I felt impossibly stuck. I felt like I just was everything in my life, both at work and personally and and then toward the end of the year, uh, Amber's family had some profound, profound uh, falling outs and earthquake moments that just were deeply shaking. And I just found myself in a place where I, I wanted to quit being a pastor. I just wanted to quit everything. And I wanted just to hole up and self-preserve and uh, be alone, 
try to survive, you know, and I just was at this place of deep loss. And uh, I, I just remember being in so much pain every day, I thought I might die. You know, not hurt myself, but just stop existing. It just was like, yeah, that makes sense to me. If I just stopped existing, like I could see that happening. You know, just a, such a heavy, heavy place. And um, as I would spray, pr pray and spend time with the Lord each day, uh, I'd ask him what to do, and he just simply told me that he was with me. And he told me this day after day after day, and one day I finally cried out and said, Lord, what good is it that you're with me if I still have to experience this much pain? If life is still this hard, what does it matter that you're with me? What does it mean? What does it benefit me? And uh, the Lord didn't answer me that day. But he just told me to keep moving forward. And as I just very, like at the end of a marathon, you know, I'm just hobbling toward some unknown finish line uh, in life. As I move forward slowly but surely, things began to resolve themselves one day at a time. And as I fought in prayer every day, just to have the strength to do what was right in front of me, uh, each situation began to resolve in a way that uh, was amazing. That just was beyond my wildest hopes for it. And um, as these things began to resolve, I remember one morning reading this in my quiet time. This won't be on the screen, but uh, Julian of Norwich lived in England during this time of incredible emotional, uh, political, social, economic upheaval. Uh, she saw the beginning of the Hundred Year War between England and France, and she lived through the bubonic plague, which was a pandemic like we're familiar with, but this pandemic killed a third of Europe's population. She saw the church divided. She saw it living in moral compromise with the government. And so Julian withdrew from society to just pray and seek God. And while in that time of prayer, uh, she had this a vision, this experience with God, and this is what she wrote about it. She wrote, all will be well, and all will be well, and every kind of thing will be well. I saw hidden in God an exalted and wonderful mystery, which he will make plain, and we shall know in heaven. In this knowledge, we shall truly see the cause, why he allowed sin to come, and in this sight we shall rejoice forever. Another understanding is this, that there are many deeds so evilly done and lead to such great harms that it seems to us impossible that any good could ever come from them, such as the angels who fell out of heaven because of pride and the many who live unchristian lives and so die to God's love. In all this being so, it seemed to me that it was impossible that every kind of thing should be well, as our Lord revealed to me at this time. And to this I had no other answer as a revelation from our Lord except this. He said to me, what is impossible to you is not impossible to me. I shall preserve my word in everything, and I shall make everything well. And after I read this, the Lord just whispered in my spirit, when I tell you that I'm with you, it means that all will be well. And I just broke down and wept as I began to know, not just theologically, but by experience in my own life, what it meant for God to be with me in the midst of darkness, 
And I just want to ask you, where are you at today? As we talk about not just knowing about God, but knowing Him by experience, where on this list do you see yourself today? Are you still trying to recognize where God is at work around you? Have you surrendered your life to God because He pursues this continuing love relationship with you? Is there something God's been inviting you into that would require His power that you're afraid to step into? Have you learned to discern God's voice to know that He's speaking to you? Have you stopped to listen to what He might want to say about your current circumstances? Are you stuck in a crisis of belief that is going to require a faith you're not sure you have? Are you butting against the major adjustments that God is asking you to make? Because He is God and we're not. Are you struggling to know God by experience because you're stuck observing instead of obeying? Which of these resonates with you most? Is there a place where Jesus is putting that pressure on your heart to take a next step. I just want to invite you today, say yes to that next step with Jesus. God desires that you not just know about him, but that you come to know him by experience as you obey him and he accomplishes his work through you. If you've never surrendered your life to Jesus today, I want to give you that opportunity because God has a life of purpose in store for you. You are here on purpose. You are not an accident. You are not just a random collision of molecules and atoms. You were designed. And you were designed with a purpose in mind. And that is waiting for you across the threshold of a yes to Jesus. And if that's you, I just want you to know, Jesus died on the cross so that all the sins that create all the maladies in the world and that exist in you and me, might be put to death. And when he rose from the dead, he's inviting us to a new kind of resurrected life that is free from the sins that plague us, that captivate us, and that promise freedom, and that only give us death and grief and loss. I want you to pray with me now. Whether you're stuck somewhere on this list, or whether you're hesitant to take that step across the threshold of a yes to Jesus. I just want to invite you to pray with me now. Father, we need you. Lord, I just pray that you would move in power by your Holy Spirit, that you would just touch the places in our lives, Lord, that situations, conversations, circumstances would come to our minds now. Lord, that are the place where you want us to say yes and take that next step. Lord, for those of us who have yet to say yes to you and have a relationship with you, we just surrender now. God, we just ask that you would move in us by your power. We are weak and we need your help and our faith is small. But Lord, we can sense that there is something more that you have for us. And so Lord, we surrender. We just ask you to forgive our sins. And that, Lord, you convict us by your Holy Spirit and move us into righteousness, Lord. That your kingdom would come and your will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thank you for joining us today at Life Church Livonia. If you just prayed with me or you uh, need help taking your next step in following Jesus, I just want to encourage you, please reach out to us. 
please reach out to us via our digital connection card and our digital bulletin or via Facebook, and we would love to get in contact with you. Thanks for joining us today, and we'll see you next week for Easter and this Friday for Good Friday.